Hello, Fight fans, and welcome to the Hollywood Brunettes Wrestling Podcast. I am your host, Matt, the store brand Keanu. Alongside me is my tag team partner, the Danimal. How's it going, Matty? All right, and today we actually, in a rare moment of legitimacy, have a guest host with us today uh, from the Catching Up on Cinema podcast. We have my brother, Trevor, the Asian badger himself. Trevor, <laughs> say hello. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. I'm glad to have you. We love getting that random third guy thrown in to make a six-man tag. So <laughs> Triple three out. <laughs> All right. Tell us a bit about your show there, Trev. Uh, well, yeah, it's a movie review podcast or movie analysis, rather, I guess. But it's a, it's called Catching Up on Cinema. And basically, me and my regular co-host, Kyle, we just introduce each other to films and try to expand our cinematic horizons. Uh, it's We post pretty much every week, uh, and there's about two bonus episodes every month. Uh, so we've got heaps of content out there, and you can find us on pretty much any podcasting platform you can imagine, including Cephalopod. Right on. All right, let's dive right into it today we're going to do a good the bad and the ugly review of various wrestlers in acting roles it sounds a lot lamer than it actually is going to be so let's dive right into it danimal who do you have for a good example for wrestling acting performance okay so i'm going with one of the big names but not a movie that comes to mind for a lot of people but i thought i thought his role was a little subversive for a touch and that was dave batista in the recent blade runner i guess it was the sequel just like way after the fact but when i saw that he was in it i figured that it was just going to be the typical heavy that stands next to someone and he's got this very like you know he's gotten away from you know the rough and tumble life and he's going on kind of about like miracles and it gets into the mythology of the movie but it was a very nuanced performance that kind of gave me the like okay he's got a bit more than just the like bruiser with a a funny quip here or there and it was just pleasing to me to see that he was he was willing to step out of that because I think as a wrestler especially if you're gaining success like Batista has been it's really easy to just be like all right you know I'm not going to be the rock but I can get, you know, some blockbusters that I'm supporting in and star on some straight to Amazon movies. So I thought that, especially at the beginning of the film, it was a really, really interesting choice for him. So that was one that I, I definitely enjoyed. That's a great pick. I, I heard that that actually opened quite a lot of doors for him in terms of uh, opportunities for acting roles. And um, yeah, I had to admit, he, he managed a role that, yeah, had a lot more subtlety to it than I was expecting. Granted, he still gets thrown through a wall at one point or throws Brian Gosling through one, but... Um, Batista's yeah. got a Batista. I mean, you don't, you don't cast the <laughs> guy that big and not ask him to do something cool. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well played. Who you got for us, Trevor? Uh, in terms of good, uh, I got to go with Rowdy Roddy Piper and They Live. Uh, as I think his name in the credits, I think is Ditto or no name. Basically, the character doesn't have a name. He is a mullet with a uh, Al Borland esque plaid shirt. <laughs> uh, if you haven't seen the movie, it's a wonderful early John Carpenter kind of sci-fi film about a covert alien invasion that's happening in plain sight. Uh, we follow a bemulleted Rowdy Roddy Piper throughout the whole film, wielding a shotgun, uh, chewing bubble gum, and kicking asses and whatnot. Uh, but the real centerpiece of his contribution to the film comes in the form of an absurdly long and over-the-top fist fight that he has with uh, Keith David uh, in an alleyway 
It goes on for about five and a half minutes, which in, in the 1980s, in American cinema in particular, we're not talking like Hong Kong standards where the martial arts is why you're paying for your ticket in some in like a traditional Kung Fu film or something. This is just like a basic low budget sci-fi film. And then all of a sudden, five and a half minutes of screen time is just wrestling in an alleyway. <laughs> and I, I, I have to believe that John Carpenter buddied up with Rowdy Roddy Piper and was just like, hey, you do that wrestling stuff, don't you? And he's like, yeah, what about it? Because <laughs> that's, I, I imagine that's how Rowdy Roddy Piper speaks even in like daily conversation. But uh, they just decided like, you know, I think we're basically going to improvise an absurdly long fight scene just because we have two big guys who know how to throw hands. Um, but on the whole, he's he's a pretty charismatic performer. Like the movie is kind of built around him, and it's kind of shocking that it it works, even though he doesn't have a whole lot of dialogue. Most of it's just one-liners, and a lot of them are good. Some of them are kind of shit. Uh, but the whole movie kind of works, and it's a really fun one to come back to, mostly because it has that John Carpenter magic where the whole thing moves, and then when it doesn't, it's like, okay, well, let's just throw the plot out the window and start shooting things. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I thought he actually did quite well. I know he's had many acting performances in his career, um, but this is probably the one he's best known for, at least in terms of like straight up acting. I mean, I, I'm never going to talk shit about They Live. I love that movie. <laughs> um, and, you know, Danimal and I have discussed in the past, you know, recordings that like me personally, I feel like John Moxley brings that level of charisma and kind of roughneck attitude in the modern times now that uh, I believe embodied what Piper used to do. And personally, I feel like they live like some of the most comical portions of it was a lot of that factor where we forget how larger than life wrestlers really are in re when compared to other actors. So some of the funniest sequences in they live or when you see Roddy Piper, but you forget that like the extras and everyone around her are probably like average height. And then you have this giant muscle bound man just bounding around constantly, like screaming about aliens. So it's like, I think that kind of played a factor and why it doesn't hold up for some who maybe weren't you know, raised with that era of filmmaking, but yeah, I think it's an excellent choice. You have anything to add to that Danimal? I mean, a, a couple of quick things. That one, it's it's a phenomenal movie that is probably more prescient today than it was even then. The concept of just like how much is going on that we're completely unaware of, um, because you know the the crux of it is the, the the magic pair of sunglasses that reveal all the alien propaganda, which is also comically what the entire fight in the alley is over. Like five and a half minutes of brawling because one one grown man wants another grown man to put on some sunglasses and like. At no point are they just like, you know what, fuck it, it's not worth it. <laughs> but no, I, I think it's a phenomenal movie. And yeah, I think that it's one of those things that you could look back and be like, oh man, great premise, but they really, they really botched the the casting. But no, I think I think Piper did a really good job and it kind of made sense that he was just this drifter who stood out just enough um, that it's a little believable that people are, you know, dubious of him, especially with such an outlandish claim. All right, another excellent choice. Uh, for my good selection, this one's going to be a little awkward, but uh, Jake the Snake in uh, Peanut Butter Falcon. I don't know if you gentlemen saw that one. Um, kind of, uh, I mean, it, it's one of those movies that it's real easy to just kind of roll your eyes at. I mean, anything that features Shia LaBeouf now. 
in particular. I mean, you could argue previously, but especially now, it's kind of like take with a grain of salt and a little bit of cringe. Um, and then the premise being that it deals with a gentleman with Down syndrome seeking out a sage wrestler that he's been watching the same VHS copy of this guy promoting his wrestling camp from you know, childhood until he's an adult now. But he finally encounters said wrestler who's played by Thomas Hayden Church. I forget the wrestler name, but he's essentially like classic, like blue blazer, drives a blue Cadillac, has blue face mask, blue shorts, all that. And he invites him to perform at a house show uh, and wrestle against Sam, who's played by Jake the Snake. And the whole time Jake the Snake's playing Jake the Snake, he's hanging around the background, smoking cigarettes, hacking up random things <laughs> in all off times. So, you know, it's a pretty natural role. But when it actually gets into the wrestling component of it, and mind you, this is this is also a same scene that features Mick Foley, but you barely notice him. Like that's how charismatic Jake the Snake is in this this scene, and he just hops into it and he's in full heel mode, and he's smacking around Zach, the uh, the character with Down syndrome, and he's calling him all sorts of horrible names, and he's like not going easy on him, but he's also playing up the total heel role, which is so critical to putting on a house show in particular. Because it literally is taking place in a barn in somebody's like backyard in a bayou. And you have this guy who, this whole movie, which is pretty lighthearted. It's, it's that classic, like a modern retelling of the Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer adventures. And it's like, in this case, it's like you needed some sort of antagonist. So you enter Jake the Snake. And for one, about one minute, because I think that's as long as he can perform physical activity without having to lean against a ring post. But for that one minute, he he's right back in it. And it reminds you just why he was able to captivate so many people, despite so long where he was just so out of it. And despite, you know, when you look back and it's like, this guy seems like a joke. And it's like, no, he knew how to play a crowd. And, and it's on full display in that sequence. So I, I tip the cap to that role. I've really been intrigued by that movie. So I, having heard that, especially for Jake the Snake to be back in the ring, that's that's definitely going to make the watch list. And uh, the, the wife even showed some interest in it. So now I'm, I'm all aboard for a very interesting movie. So great, great call. It, it's better than it needed to be. And, you know, th there's definitely some sequences that certainly you can view as being like, oh, you're kind of exploiting the the situation of it being you know a movie that stars a character with down syndrome but at the same time it's like they actually have some really good actors scattered throughout it and there's some really compelling performances and you know it's real easy to get into which sometimes can be the mark of a fun movie so uh definitely curious to hear your thoughts on that when you get around to it danimal and moving along let's get a bad example who you got for us danimal all right, this is this is kind of cheating because I, I'm taking, gosh, maybe five or six bad performances all rolled into a movie that had no no uh, room existing, and that's going to be the longest yard cash grab remake put on by WWE Productions, um, which featured uh, Stone Cold playing into a racist prison guard stereotype, um, Goldberg being renowned for the size of his penis. The Great Khali not really moving, but being gigantic. Um, Kevin Nash cries because he gets slipped to estrogen. Um, 
Jeez, I, I I know that there's there's some former athletes in here that I'm I'm forgetting, but I feel like that was one of the early uh, shoehorning of WWE wrestlers into roles that just everything about it was rough. It's like poor Burt Reynolds, like they you know I can't imagine how much they had to pay him to desecrate his own classic. But and then the yeah, I, I guess pickup game legend Adam Sandler as the quarterback is also pretty tough. Um, yeah, I mean, outside of Nelly, I don't think anyone looked very good in that one. But the the wrestlers, especially, I was I was feeling pretty bad for uh, throughout the movie. But good job by Stone Cold for you know being able to say that he was just acting and not getting canceled for it. So I feel like he's going to come up a few times on this list, and I'm curious to see in which category for certain. Um, and I'm super happy that you picked that as a bad example because it's always one of those where it's like. Uh, I don't know where people how people value this movie, but it really, really was a joke. And that's sad when it's a comedy film intended to make you laugh and you can't even get to it. Trevor, who do you have for a bad example? Uh, well, I mean, the Danimal actually mentioned him uh, being in The Longest Yard. I, I mean, that's no surprise. There were so many wrestlers in that film. It's kind of ridiculous. But um, mine is uh, Bill Goldberg uh, again. Uh, in Universal Soldier The Return, uh, which was the late sequel to Universal Soldier, the theatrical film, which actually had a few direct-to-video sequels not featuring Jean-Claude Van Damme or Dolph Lundgren. Uh, funny enough, it's one of those franchises that has a lot of ups and downs to it, because uh, the first one's pretty solid, uh, and then the direct-to-video ones, the first couple ones, complete garbage. Uh, Universal Soldier The Return, not complete garbage but mostly garbage <laughs> but then there's a couple of more uh direct-to-video sequels they did after the fact that are actually stellar like they're really incredible uh for what they are um and they even got van damme back and dolph for that matter um but universal soldier the return is a jcvd and a very young michael jai white i i think it was post spawn um but bill goldberg plays kind of like your requisite like terminator type figure uh, where if you put him opposite Van Damme, he, he, I mean, he looks gigantic next to your average person, and Van Damme is probably about average in height, despite the the muscles from Brussels and whatnot. Uh, so he's just a figure that shows up kind of like the nemesis from like Resident Evil from time to time, just periodically to kick down doors and fall down elevator shafts. And I think his catchphrase is like, I hate that guy or something. And as an actor, he just he doesn't have any real charisma. I mean, his physicality in 1999, they probably shot it in like 1997, like was on point. Uh, but just in terms of his his charisma on screen, he really just didn't have it. Like even in terms of his his movement, his physicality as an action actor, uh, his his punches don't look particularly remarkable. He doesn't take a bump any better than anyone I've seen wrestler or, or otherwise on film. Um, but yeah, he's just kind of there to be kind of a, a big guy fall down kind of goof from time to time in the film. Um, and he's not even like the the true villain of it. He's just kind of he's like the equivalent of Bebop and Rocksteady in the movie, actually, where he, he's too goofy to be considered threatening. Like Michael Jai White's actually the villain, but it's not a completely horrible film. I, I do have a soft spot for the mega death song that, that accompanied it uh, crush him mostly because the music video consists of bill goldberg screaming into the camera crush him <laughs> uh but yeah it it's not not exactly what i would call a good performance nor a particularly good action film for the most part 
even though it has good people in it, which is kind of surprising. Spawn came out in 97, by the way, uh, which is, I feel like that movie came out so long ago. It seems timeless. Yeah, we're uh, getting a new one pretty soon as well. Um, it's about time, actually, because, I mean, as far as I understand, and like Spawn never really went away. Like Todd McFarlane, like Image Comics is still cranking them out, I think. So it's about time we got another Spawn. I know people are waiting, especially since uh, he's in Mortal Kombat 11. So seems like things are in motion like we're we're due for a spawn all right speaking of which my bad examples from another uh franchise that i believe that we'll be getting a uh, remake of shortly that would be triple h as jarko grimwood in blade three now <laughs> blade three is another one of those movies that actually when you look at the cast involved it's it's much better than it has any mean deserves for being the third movie in a vampire hunting trilogy. Um, I have to say, though, Triple H at a time when Gangrel was active in the WWE, seeing Triple H essentially be just a buffer version of that and trying to look menacing is just so comical. He, he just can't be anything besides Triple H to me. And it furthermore, like, Blade 3 to me is always just the movie where Ryan Reynolds all of a sudden showed up and was like ridiculously jacked and it threw everyone for a loop. It was like, isn't that Van Wilder? Like, why is Van Wilder like comically large in this movie? So just the fact that like not only does he not get featured for his physique, which, you know, granted some of it's provided by medicine, but you know, the guys maintain a pretty impressive body throughout his entire wrestling career. And he got upstaged by a, com a Canadian comedian. So, yeah. And he's he's pretty bad at it. I mean, like I said, he's he's Triple H, which Triple H is great as a menacing guy talking for 20 minutes uh, in the middle of the ring uh, in front of a live audience. Uh, doesn't quite work, though, when you're in a fast paced, you know, Wesley Snipes featured movie. So. All That's right. a great call, and that one—the fact that he his like big uh, scene partner besides Ryan Reynolds was a vampire Pomeranian, and that's like a real point of the film. Um, <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> the Blade movies hold a very special place for me, and yeah, coming off of like the underrated Blade Two, which was the Del Toro movie, the fact that they then get this pretty stellar supporting cast for Blade Trinity, and then it's like they highlight all the wrong people. It's like get Patton Oswalt and Natasha Leone and just kill them off off screen but make sure make sure Jessica Biel gets a lot of character development so but yeah Triple H was a real disappointment as a wrestling fan it's like oh finally he's getting the rock treatment one almost one and done no nah, but Blade 3 is kind of a disaster I, I despise that film like the first two films are excellent like like you like the animal had just said Blade 2 in particular is highly underrated it's very solid but a Triple H I don't even I don't even think he's a legit vampire in the movie like I seem to remember he had metal implants for fangs so he was a vampire groupie basically um which explains why Ryan Randalls is able to defeat him in hand-to-hand -hand combat, which is kind of embarrassing given that it's Triple H. And like Matt had said, he's not there for his physique either. This was in that like weird early 2000s period where he really wasn't as tight as he 
usually is and his i don't think his shirt ever comes off in the movie meanwhile like brian reynolds is all like lathered up with oil and it's just like popping abs <laughs> and like triple h is just like fat kid at the pool like nah, i don't think i need to take my polo off today <laughs> i feel but, like he had the poofy gothic shirt going too for a portion of it at least it it's not a good role nor a good movie i mean i always i i always get a little kick out of referring to the man as prison break but there's an actor dominic purcell who is on a tv show called prison break therefore i refer to the man as prison break <laughs> we have dracula as portrayed by prison break who serves as our principal villain in the film it's like i'm sorry i don't want to see blade fight prison break <laughs> in a sword fight to de to decide the fate of all vampire like peoples across the planet but yeah triple h is he's like a fart in the wind in that movie like he may as well not have been there you could have gotten anyone else they didn't even have to be buff in fact it would have been better because you could have had a sight gag in the form of like a diminutive guy where it's like oh the little guy hasn't done anything yet <laughs> you know it's gonna be good <laughs> and then like he whips ryan reynolds ass or something doing like fancy flips and kicks and stuff but no we get oversized triple h being physically overshadowed by the normally funny guy canadian guy <laughs> that suddenly showed up super jacked what a shit show all right well that's a perfect segue into the ugly category who do you got for an ugly performance there danimal okay so this one was particularly heartbreaking because we're going into a sequel off what i still consider one of my favorite action adventure movies and that was the brendan fraser mummy honestly a great romp to this day still enjoy it hbo max watch in my house frequently somehow my wife likes it and then comes the mummy returns with the rock and i'm so excited my passions are coming together and the movie opens and you get this cool rock like scorpion king which really featured him it was kind of like the last season of ballers like they had him for maybe like 45 minutes so they were just like all right we're just gonna have you like in a cgi desert a CGI temple scene and yelling something once while you're flexing. But then they build, they build, they build. The Scorpion King is coming back. And the doors open and it's like a PS2 cutscene. It was the worst rock scorpion mashup thing where he just looked so bad. And it was just such a bummer because it was like they built it up and it's like he's already the rock going up against Brendan Fraser and Arnold Vosloo. Like, neither of these guys are physically imposing. So taking, like, a six-foot-four Samoan who's jacked, you know, give him, like, some extra, like, you know, I don't know, a claw or something. But, no, they went full CGI, like, and it was just so disappointing. So it was, and it was legitimately ugly. Like, it does not hold, it didn't hold up then, and it sure as shit does not hold up now. So despite all of the successes, the major motion debut of The Rock was massively ugly and just massively disappointing excellent choice because damn that was such a letdown like because it was the same for me i mean it was like my god he's finally being acknowledged as the most charismatic figure who has ever entered the ring is finally going to get his his due on the mainstream and yeah when they uh, the finale to the movie is you're right. It's like PS2 graphics. It's the, some of the worst ever. It's like, just give him a 
damn like fake suit and throw him out there he's a massive guy nobody's gonna care if he's swinging around like a rubber tail like it'll still look cool he's a huge dude but no they they had to go the computer generated route and it was it was terrible yeah it was very much a product of its time and i i remember matt our entire household was was kind of upset about that because we the rock was like the one wrestler that could actually get our mom to watch it with us like to actually watch raw from time to time because the man was so electrifying he's the most electrifying man in sports entertainment um and yeah i I remember they had like an entertainment tonight promo and everything like hyping up the fact that the rock is in the upcoming the mummy returns so it's like he was a huge part of the marketing campaign for that movie and all he does is bookend it and all he the only lines he has i think are in egyptian it's like haku (laughs) and then that's about it and then he does his weird jiggle dance with the fake CGI, like sandstorm hitting him and turning him into a wristband. And then, like you said, he shows up at the end as a really poorly animated CGI figure in an era when we weren't exactly ready for that. Like, like photorealistic human renderings were not something we were really capable of doing. And we have tons of nasty close-ups of CGI rock where it's like it maybe would have been better to just like have a floating head of like rock like live filmed and then superimpose it onto the CGI body of the scorpion thing. Or better yet, like Matt had said, he's a big guy. Just open have the doors open and have the rock come out swinging in mace or something. It's like I paid for the rock. I just I just want to see the rock. But they made their choice. Um, if you want to see an interesting update uh, to the CGI of that scene, uh, the Corridor Digital crew on a YouTube actually did a, a deep fake. Of, they like reskinned that sequence and superimposed the rock's face onto the figure, and it looks better. And it took them like an afternoon to, to do, but you know that's advances in technology. But yeah, that is certainly an ugly uh, instance of a wrestler being inserted into a film for sure. All right. Ugly example. Trevor, your turn. Okay. This one's kind of obscure and I only half remember this movie, but I do know that I've seen it. Um, so this is, uh, he had to come up at some point, uh, being as he, he was the man for, for a good long while there. Uh, that would be Mr. Hulk Hogan, uh, in Santa with muscles. Uh, <laughs> this is a 1996, uh, holiday film, uh, where it's kind of like a, a twisted millionaire type figure learns a lesson uh, via a bump on the head. So we get introduced to Hulk Hogan's character and he's like playing paintball with his servants in his giant like palatial estate. Uh, so he's that much of an asshole that he shoots his own like his own like butlers with paint guns and like tranquilizer rounds and stuff for funsies. Um, but at some point some shenanigans happen and he gets a bump on the noggin and develops amnesia and then is misled into believing that he is the the one true Santa Claus. Uh, And he joins an orphanage and does Santa Claus-like things. And oh yeah, there's like bad guys, kind of like Scooby-Doo level type bad guys. One of whom is played uh, by a British fella. I can't remember his name, but he was on that Crossing Jordan television show that was not really a thing ever, but it was on in that precise time slot where I had access to the TV. And so I would just watch it. Didn't matter if it was good, it it was just on. Um, But anyway, uh, some other fun little factoids about the cast is that uh, Don Stark and Mila Kunis are both in this. uh, And the two of them would both go on to be on that 70s show together only a few years later. Uh, 
it, it's kind of a weird casting coincidence. But yeah, this movie is complete shit. Like it's really cheap to look at. And Hulk Hogan's charisma as an actor probably peaked with like Suburban Commando and was never again the same after that. I mean, it's not like he was ever the most amazing screen actor. Um, but this one, it's like you can tell he's a little bit checked out. He was also very deflated because this was 96 and this was like very shortly after he was, well, not too shortly, a couple of years after the WCW shift and he was kind of skinny Hulk, I guess. <laughs> uh, but this was in that time period where he was really trying to like push into television and film. Like I think Thunder in Paradise was around this time as well, which was actually my alternate in case someone else took this one. Um, but yeah, if you haven't seen it, don't bother. This this one's just garbage all around. <laughs> yeah, it, it's pretty bad when, you know, Christmas movies are so easy to dive into during that time, especially for all three of us who have been alive during the basic cable era where you just turn on whatever's on. And the fact that that one's never brought up and never discussed, but something like Jingle All the Way can be held in such high esteem. It's like... Yeah, it tells you how bad it was. All right, so my ugly example is a fascinating one in the sense that I actually think it was a good performance. It just didn't quite work. And that was Stone Cold and The Expendables. Because I felt like Stone Cold Steve Austin, again, like you mentioned, Danimal, him being the, the racist guard in The Longest Yard, that was one thing and it's very much in line with this in the expendables where it's such a goofy stupid movie that seemingly was conceived of with stallone retiring to his his bedroom and playing with action figures and slamming them together and writing a script around whatever came of it but then you enter the villain stone cold who you know of course you had to have a larger than life foe to go up against you know this collection of 80s action and 90s action stars and a random MMMA guy <laughs> but uh so you have stone cold and he's so dark and he's so imposing and he waterboards that lady in like one of the more disturbing like tonal shift of that movie where it goes from like happy-go-lucky hey look at these tattooed meatheads with all their firearms and look how they never get hurt and all that and all of a sudden oh my god Dolph Lundgren's hoisting a dead body up a main a flagstaff or oh my god Mickey Rourke just gave an amazing like performance giving this completely off-the-cuff monologue talking about a young girl hanging herself in a war zone and then you have the torture sequence where it's just this long drawn out waterboarding, which there's nothing like nothing about that that is like makes you want to sit through watching it, let alone one that lasts like seemingly 10 minutes. It's probably closer to five. But by the end of that movie, you really, really, really fucking hate Stone Cold Steve Austin. And it's already problematic given that Stone Cold is already on the fence of that being that controversial figure in that you know, he's, he's kind of done some bad shit in his day. And so I love him as a wrestler though. So you always have that, that part that you're fighting it with yourself with. And then you add to it, the fact that he's playing a really enhanced version of the stone cold villain that he always played in the ring. So it's like, it's too much. It's like now he's, he's descended into full on psychopath. And yeah, it makes me uncomfortable, particularly in a movie of this nature. 
All right. So now that we've gone through a good, the bad, and the ugly, um, we're at the point where we can go through again, or if you want, we can just do go backs. And if you have an example from each category, feel free to share. So Danimal, you have any others that you wanted to bring up? Yeah, I think, I think there was one that I wanted to shout out because I feel like it's like the lost rock movie. And well, I won't say necessarily the lost because he did some really early stuff. But maybe it's just the Pacific Northwest speaking to me, but I feel like no one ever talks about Walking Tall. Like the rundown was kind of like his charismatic movie where he's like got the, the good comic foil, like Sean William Scott and you got Walken. But then it's like downgrade all the stakes from like the jungle, the Pacific Northwest, Walken to Neil McDonough and Sean William Scott to Johnny Knoxville. And then now, now you're speaking to me, but I love how like the movie doesn't quite get its tone entirely. Like he gives his impassioned speech after he's like, once again, brutally tortured and left for dead. But then it like flips into him, like being the sheriff and he gives the speech and shows it. But then he fires everyone in the comical scene, like just a kind of an odd one, but I, I it's just always had a place in my heart. Cause I feel like they kind of were like, you know, Rock was reading the script and he's like, oh, the courthouse scene, that's going to be the like, this guy can really do it. And it, I don't know if it entirely worked, but I, I really enjoyed it. And it's got some, some great, like those guys moments, like Kevin Durand is like the random guy that they, they go ahead and like, they dismantle his truck. And then, you know, he ends up dying like everyone else. But I, I felt like that was a good, that kind of gets left behind in early rock roles. Yeah, it almost feels like it came out like a little bit too early, to be honest, um, because that was in the pre-taken era of like tooth and nail action movies where, you know, the, your spectacle is generally centered around people punching each other or maybe people firing semi-automatic weapons at each other. Low stakes kind of stuff, not like save the world type stuff. It's more save the town. Um, but I think that was like in the early mid 2000s, probably like 2004 or something like that. Um, but if we had if we like the consumer had gotten more used to that style of film, I think maybe, or maybe it would have been tailored a little bit better to that um, because there were some quirks in the, the action design in that film. Like there's some weird, like wire gags and him like leaping around the casino with the two by four where it's like, that's kind of showy for, for the rock. Like, can we just have him be grounded and do rock stuff instead of like angly esque like wire foo <laughs> like, but again early 2000s that's kind of the flavor we had going at that time but yeah i i remember it it being fairly good like it, it's not like an outstanding film by any means but as an early rock film like it's it's, it's a good companion piece to you know the rundown um but matt I, I wanted to roll back for just a second to ask you about stone cold in the expendables and it sounds like it sounds like a big part of it, like your issue with it is uh, having to do not just with Stone Cold playing the character, but also just the way the character is written because it, it, the whole character is in a different movie kind of like it, like you said, they represent like an escalation of like ugly violence that the rest of the movie doesn't have for the most part. Um, but the, all that stuff aside, could you think of like a different wrestler who maybe could have brought a little bit more like a winking energy to it that would have made it a little less like, heavy i guess you know it, it's tough for me to say because i'll be the first one to admit that i didn't do my research and checked out the local red box so i'm not as familiar with some of the second tier guys like edge or 
the Miz or the ones who I know have been in a ton of stuff, but um, you know, I, I'm just not as familiar with their performance. Um, I'd be curious, Kane. I know he did that one movie where he was like the the villain, like it was like one of those horror stalker movies. See no evil. See no evil. Um, I, I didn't hear that it was terrible. But I almost feel like something like that, where the character, it's more the physical presence is the intimidation factor. It, it takes away something. Like compare it to Rambo um, First Blood Part 2, when, you know, who's the muscle bound guy that chains him to the bed frame and is sh- sh- electrocuting him. Uh, like that's a torture sequence. But that whole time, like you're not really like on the edge of your seat like worrying that this actor may perish not just the character but like the actor themselves may be in harm's way just for the sake of cinema um so like i i think just if they had just defaulted like big dumb angry villain it would have fit better with the tone of that well, yeah movie. and I, th- I think the biggest thing is just the waterboarding like you could have had stone cold still do the role and just like shove her into the into the prison or like um, yeah like throw her in there and then shut the door and make a mean face or something and then if you cut that scene it's like oh we're this this is totally consistent with the rest of the movie but actually kane actually he would have been a good he would have been a good, good choice because he wouldn't really have to speak at all it's like he's big fucking kane <laughs> like, like, <laughs> i mean everyone else in that room even like Dolph Lundgren, would look pretty tiny next to him danimal could you think of anyone I think I think that you're right in the sense that the plot point in and of itself is so problematic that even if you were to like try to go, you know, with someone who maybe like it's supposed to be kind of like the the little guy who's crazy. So you cast like, you know, a smaller wrestler who's still like, you know, somewhat physically imposing. I think that, yeah, the, the tonal aspect doesn't work because, yeah, it's like I guess the only one that came up to mind for me for some reason was Randy Orton. But I think that's just because when I think of someone doing like a heinous scene in a movie, like Orton is just so good at looking like the part of evil, maybe like, you know, hunting people's skulls for 15 years. But even then, you know, I think he could add that, that physical idea that if you had him just like manhandling this female character, because he's so physically imposing and he's got that menacing look to him, that that may have been enough that it's believable since he's like six, five and, you know, looks like a statue. So that that's probably the route I would have gone because yeah I can't I can't think of a character that I'd be like yeah the waterboarding really works now like that that was just like I think I think we keep coming back to you know the moment of like let's really dial this up a notch like the torture and walking tall the water the waterboarding and expendables it's just like no you can just you can just beat someone to like a pulp or yeah you know throw them into inhumane conditions and laugh at them or something like you know you don't need to up the stakes we know these people are assholes. Yeah, or just shoot them at a really menacing look that's suggestive of something awful, but there's no actual act behind it. But Randy Orton would be great, actually. Like, like you said, he's he's very good at being the bad guy, and that particular kind of like sadistic type bad guy. Um, I think that's when he's at his best for the most part. Although, I don't know, man, that guy's got a temper, and he and Stone Cold and and Stallone got pretty fucking physical on the set. I don't think I would want that to happen with Randy Orton involved. Like Stallone got his neck broke on that shoot. I think he would have died if Randy Orton was on that scene. <laughs> Randy does have serious, like I'll show you how fake wrestling is vibes where it's just like, you know, you, you think the muscles are fake and yeah, I, I could definitely see him showing, showing these guys that can't really move that well anymore. What a, 
an agile giant man can do. So yeah, that, that probably would have been for the best. No, yeah, he'd break Stallone's neck and be like, stupid, stupid. <laughs> and I'd be like, dude, that guy's the director of the film. <laughs> like, oh, care. And they'd punt him. <laughs> yeah. I, I think you, you hit the nail on the head. I, I think Randy Orton has has all the, the imposing qualities that you needed for that role without the baggage, uh, the additional baggage that Stone Cold brought with his character. So um, I, I'm glad you brought us back to that, Trev. That's a, that was a fun little segue. Um, I actually wanted to mention too, Walking Tall, if I, if I recall, that's based on a true story. Yeah. I think yeah. That yeah. that's that was always part of the the factor where they didn't want to go full bore action flick, even though that's what it needed. Like he really just needed the rock wielding a two by four and kicking ass and a bunch of rednecks in Pacific Northwest. But they, I think they tried to add too many elements to the real story that, eh, I mean, it is what it is. I, I actually really enjoyed it when it came out. I remember that. I, I seem to remember there was one of those torture slash football sequences that occurred at the oh moment. yeah i forgot about the football game the classic like he's got a bad knee yeah <laughs> <laughs> so yeah anything that's got a moment like that i'm gonna i'm gonna be a fan of on some level trevor you have any go backs for us uh good bad or ugly I got a good one for you. Uh, this is me kind of advertising a little little scene movie that I actually happen to have on my shelf back there. Uh, it's called Bushwick, uh, and it's starring Dave Bautista. Uh, it's a very it's an indie movie, but it's a very very ambitious one on a technical level, especially uh, the first ten minutes of it are shot in that manner where the edits are seamlessly stitched stitch together in such a way as to give the impression that it's a, it's a one, it's a oneer, like it's a one take action sequence. Um, but the whole movie is about like an American uh, insurgency or civil war type situation. Like the Southern States invade the North and it takes place in the Bushwick neighborhood of New York. And the story as we're introduced to it is framed from the perspective of a young woman, like just arriving in town to visit her boyfriend. And then her boyfriend gets set on fire and falls into the subway in front of her. And we follow her through like essentially the breakout of a war sequence in downtown New York. Um, and eventually she crosses paths with Dave Batista, who's a war veteran who just doesn't want any trouble. In the words of the immortal Jackie Chan, I don't want any trouble. <laughs> um, and he saves her from some hooligans and then their mission becomes to get out of the situation basically and kind of piece together the narrative of what's going on on the fly. Um, and the on the fly aspect of the movie is what really makes it work is that you only get information where it's appropriate. Like the movie seldom stops dead just to dump exposition. It's, it has a good energetic pace to it. Um, it really moves. It's shot pretty well, um, has some decent action sequences for a very, very, very low budget movie. Um, but Batista's really, really good in it. Um, he carries a lot in the movie and, uh, if you can get past his heavy breathing in the first 20 minutes of it, <laughs> it's a very good performance. It's, it's kind of obnoxious, actually. Like his introduction into the film is just like this giant shadow rushing into a basement and just clobbering a couple of dudes to death. You don't even really see what happens, but do the math. It's, it's Dave Batista going to town on two thugs. Um, but after the fact, there, he like tries to 
sell the fact that he had to like really expend a lot of energy to you know crush two skulls basically and he's just like <laughs> for like the next 20 minutes of the movie and it's almost like he's breathing directly into the microphone but it's like you're, you're overselling dave <laughs> like you're overselling but um yeah if you haven't seen it i would highly recommend it it's a it's an ambitious little movie that I uh, didn't really make a whole lot of a splash when it came out. It did well at like film festivals and that's how I found about, out about it. Um, but I actually haven't bothered to look up the directors to see what else they've done, um, if anything. So maybe that'll be my task after this recording. All right. Well, I'll keep the uh, good vibe going then. Um, and I would be remiss not to mention John Cena as the role of Steven in the comedic flick Trainwreck. Um, you know, it, it brings me back to that pre-COVID era with, back when you could just casually catch an afternoon flick, you know, just on a whim, just to say, I want to sit in a theater and see what's out. And that, that was certainly Trainwreck for me. It wasn't really anything I was seeking out, but, you know, why not? It, it's a fun way to kill an afternoon. And the movie itself, not a big fan, but damn, John Cena killed his small little role being um, a date of um, the comedian in that one, Amy Schumer. So he obviously is poised for a big breakout now, um, clearly with what he's got multiple movies on the way. One, the Fast and the Furious one, and then he's also a member of the new um What's the one enlighten me, Trevor? The Suicide Squad. Suicide Squad. There we go. So yeah, John Cena's poised for big things. He's certainly evolved outside of the Marine, but it was it was a real treat to see him kind of like be able to kind of drop the whole like he was. This was in the heart of the Thugonomics era, so like to kind of go into a just comedic role of kind of playing a parody of himself essentially, and you know for a movie that also featured like LeBron James in a prominent acting role who's also poised for a big breakout with Space Jam too. Um, I'm going to tell you right now John Cena like acted and laps around him so all righty so we've gone through good again Danimal you care to venture at another bad example you know I think because going off of uh, Trevor's Bushwick which I did see um, and was an absolute shock it was kind of like I thought it was just going to be some like schlocky like yeah Dave Batista in a war zone he turns into you know 80s action hero and blows everyone away um but I believe that was part of a back-to-back -back Dave Batista I did um I think on Amazon Prime which included final score which was just like bad might be strong but I think on the heels of some real Dave Batista praise with uh his um with Bushwick I, I gotta go with what happens when you go through multiple wrestler movies in a, a library because the, the concept is basically that he's at this soccer game and gets embroiled in like a crazy thing with like a Russian or an Eastern European diplomat who's undergone like plastic surgery to look like Pierce Brosnan who is is working with a great European accent and it's it's the typical like stadium thing. So you've got the crowd going on and, you know, the fans going nuts with certain things, whole thing's wired to explode. And it, it kind of felt like it was in the, like Dave kind of going through scripts and it was just like, I think so might've been like a one for you, one for me 
where Bushwick was like, hey, this is really interesting. It could, you know, could bomb, could be, you know, people say I'm stepping out of my depth. And then final score was just like, this will, this will cash, you know, this will cash a good paycheck. <laughs> like I may as well beat some people up and, you know, get thrown to safety by explosions. So I, uh, yeah, after, after keeping a lot of praise on, uh, on Dave Batista, I think, I think I got to go with kind of the, the straight to video on demand, uh, final score. Yeah. It's, it's not, especially remarkable as far as direct-to-video type action movies go. Uh, it feels like a rejected script for uh, Sudden Death, uh, the Van Damme movie, which actually did get a sequel very recently with Michael Jai White. Uh, that movie is grossly under-budgeted. Uh, if you want to see what like really low-budget action movies look like, look that one up. Um, oh, who, who do you think you're talking to? I, I saw that one as well. As a big Michael J. White fan who's been in some really impressive, hmm, you know, didn't see that one come in movies. That was not one of them. No, no. I mean, there is some novelty factor in that his wife is in there and you get to see them like fight each other in it. It's just like, I don't know what that's like. Like what's like to be on the set for that, but I would be a little tense. But yeah, it's it's one of those like tragically under budgeted movies where it's like, it's actually not awful, but you can tell they just had no time and no money. Um, and there's actually some really talented people in there. Like Maurice Crump is a is a martial arts actor that is due for like a big breakout role but he just can't he can't find it and he gets like a couple minute throwdown with michael jai white in the middle of the movie and then when it's over it's just like oh there's nothing there's not going to be anything better than that <laughs> and we're only halfway through <laughs> all righty uh, on that train trev you have a bad example for a wrestling acting performance <laughs> You know, actually, I, I think part of being a, a wrestling fan or like a, a fair weather wrestling fan in my case, I, I I I bounce back into it from time to time. But like my my best days as a wrestling fan might be behind me. But part of part of a consequence of that is that I tend to smile every time I just see a wrestler in a movie. So it's very hard for them to just have straight up bad performances for me anyway. Um, so I'm going to cheat a little bit. And uh, this has nothing to do with the performance. I actually thought he was just fine in it. In fact, he's kind of funny. He was like a little bit of a highlight. Um, but the movie is shit. Um, that would be Chick Fight, uh, which I checked out because as far as I know, it's the first film that Redbox ever produced. Um, and I was just curious. It's like, you know, they have all these analytics. Like they have all this data from all their customers. What would what would Redbox spend their money on given given the fact that they they're privy to all that information and they spent it on chick fight, <laughs> which is headlined by Malin Ackerman and uh, Bella Thorne and uh, Alec Baldwin, uh, who's kind of given a shit, but not, not fully giving a shit. Um, but the wrestler in this film is uh, Kevin Nash. Uh, he plays Malin Ackerman's dad and his, it, his introduction to the film is this comedic beat wherein he's kind of trying to come out to her as gay but like he he kind of bungles it and it ends up being a it blows up in his face a little bit. But then he just like kind of takes it in stride. She's the only one that has a problem with it. He's just like, fuck it. I'm old. I, I, I sleep with who I like. Deal with it. It's like I'm not with your mom anymore. Deal with it. And we keep cutting back to him every once in a while having like father daughter chats. And usually it's like him in a gay bar hanging out with his boyfriend or something. And part of what's charming about the performance is how matter of fact it is. Like Kevin Nash seems like it's actually kind of a theme in his filmography. It seems like he's very comfortable with with his sexuality and therefore he's he's not 
perturbed by the idea of exploring that on film. It's like, it's just an acting role. I don't give a shit. Um, but yeah, just just how like matter of fact the character is and how relaxed and Kevin Nashy he is in the movie actually makes it kind of a, like a charming performance. He's never asked to run. He's never in any danger of like pulling his quad or anything. So it's not that kind of performance. He's just the, the father figure in the movie. Um, but it's it's kind of a shitty sports drama. It's like a, it's about like a women's fight club. Um, it's supposed to be about like empowerment and like finding your place in the world or something. And it just utterly falls flat on its face trying to explore any of that content. Um, in fact, like there's a major plot development where the, there's a running gag early in the film where the main character can't win a fight to save her life. And the first fight she wins in the movie isn't the end of the movie when she has to have, you know, the, the, big, the big game at the end of the movie, like the Mighty Ducks match or whatever. It happens in a montage, like, like a training montage. And it's like, hang on. She just won for the first time. Like, that's kind of a big deal. It's like, no, we're just going to skip on past that. It's like, oh, it, apparently our director didn't know we were making ass sports drama, but whatever. I guess it works. But yeah, Kevin Nash is just fine in the movie. Movie's kind of shit. I mean, I totally agree with that sentiment you brought up, Trevor. Like, it's hard for me to really get down on a wrestler when I see them in a movie, just because I am, I agree. I'm like, I, I know that guy. I know that lady. So, you know, that's me when I'm watching a movie. And it typically, they're not starring in Oscar-worthy type roles. So it's kind of one of those things where I'm just like in a place where I'm like, whatever happens it makes sense to have this seven foot you know imposing figure in the corner the scene um so i'm gonna cheat a little bit here too and for my bad i'm gonna do diamond dallas page in the movie ready to rumble um you know that would be a whole another episode to itself to rant and rave about why this movie is all sorts of terrible but all you need to know about diamond dallas page's role as himself as a wcw champion ready to rumble is the fact that he did a piss poor job of putting over Oliver Platt, David Arquette, and Scott Kahn as wrestling opponents. Like when that's the trio you're going up against and you are a legitimate WCW champion and you somehow still turn out and it's a pre-recorded match because it's a whole fucking movie. The fact that you still couldn't put forth a compelling, scary, or just intimidating presence no there was none of that it was just ddp the guy from jersey he showed up did his bang thing and that was that so again oliver platt david arquette scott con scott con being the only one you can maybe see a bit imposing but i feel like he's also my height so i don't know thoughts on that gentlemen i'll do a quick scott con because I do feel like you're right and that he's an all-time like I think it must be like his dad negotiated his contract at the beginning of his career that he always has to be like done to be an imposing guy gone in 60 seconds oh he looks like a boxer like you know he's gonna bonk the guy with the the metal pole because he's such a badass like Ocean's movies like he's kind of like the most imposing guy even though it's like no nah, you know Matt, Matt Damon toughens up you know he'll kick your ass so, and yeah, same thing. He was, he was Julian Edelman basically in a varsity blues. So no, he, I think you're right in that DDP has got to be able to sell. I mean, if we can, if we can see Hornswoggle winning matches, then people should be able to, to put over David Arquette and Scott Conn. 
Yeah, I think the only time I saw Scott Kahn where he looked appropriate, or at least he was expressed on film appropriately, was um, Enemy of the State, where he just plays one of the leather-jacketed goons who just runs at mock speed throughout the entire movie. No lines, he just he just T-1000 runs at everybody throughout the entire movie. He's just there to be neck muscles and legs. <laughs> like that's, that's his... Oh, yeah, and Frosted Tips, because it was the early 2000s or 1999 or something, but... Um, yeah, Ready to Rumble is a movie I, I really would like to go back to, mostly because I'm, I'm intensely nostalgic for WCW in particular, just because it was such a shit show, but it was a magnificent shit show. Um, I want to say that when it comes to like straight up bad wrestling performances, I feel like we're going to be coming back to those guys a lot, like like the WCW veterans, uh, because they they like you know they had the Turner Company kind of backing them, and they were finding ways to weasel them into all manner of productions like i i think they even did an episode of thunder and paradise based around bash at the beach and like half of the episode is just like using footage captured on those cameras and like somehow they worked out a deal where it's like yeah rick flair and vader are the bad guys this this week <laughs> and hulk you got to go fight him except we're not going to call you hulk we're going to dub whatever your name is on the show yeah uh, there's I'm almost certain there's some terrible movies featuring Sting too that I never got around to sitting through. But yeah, I think when didn't wasn't he saved at one point? I think he made a a Christian movie at one point. Like he financed it, and I think he starred in it as well. I mean, that wouldn't shock me. All right, so we've gone through too good and too bad. Danimal, you got an ugly for us. You know, um, because it's free form and we can do whatever the heck we want, um, I'm going to go with the opposite of that. And I'm going to look forward with a face that I think is going to be showing up a lot more. And that is Mercedes Varnado, better known as the legit boss, Sasha Banks, um, kind of broke out a little bit in The Mandalorian. Got a really impressive uh, multi-episode role. And I found it mostly interesting because it's usually such a shoe, I won't say shoehorn, but when they're putting people in these roles at the beginning, it's kind of a WWE production joint venture. So the fact that she got a, she got legit push in a Disney film or a Disney TV show, but pretty, pretty epic one. And also did like a jetpack fueled like tornado DDT and had it just look awesome. Um, I kind of, I kind of wanted to go with with Sasha because I think we've been, you know, you kind of got Cena, Cena Rock, Batista as as the the established guys, but I think Sasha's kind of that that one to watch because I think that she's always had crazy charisma. I mean, honestly, you, you know, you see her and she looks like a face you're going to see on you know a movie screen just as much of a ring, and I'm just really intrigued to see where it goes because I think when that's kind of your first role is getting you know, getting the cross promotion where Disney is like, yeah, we, we think this, this girl can be a believable badass. I'm, I'm really excited to see where it goes for her. So I, I think even though it was supposed to be ugly, I completely flipped it and just went for the, uh, the face to watch in the future with Sasha. I think that's a great one. And thank you actually for being able to mention at least one woman in a prominent acting role because uh unfortunately i i tried to do some research and everything i came up with came across as if it was just softcore porn so um it's nice to see somebody who actually got a featured role that actually seemingly is going to propel their career into something bigger and better so 
Trevor? Yeah. Yeah, we're not going to be talking about Sable today, I guess. <laughs> I, I hate to, I'll jump in real quick because I did look at a list of like best wrestling performances to prep for this. And they had one that was Kimberly Page because in The 40 Year Old Virgin, there's a scene where a woman's shirt falls open and it was her. And they had that as like number two on the list. So I was just <laughs> like, man. This, this is going to be tough sledding. So, yeah, that's that's where Sasha had to get the shout-out when valets that have a 30-second role, which is, yeah, just just some blatant R-rated nudity. Uh, yeah, I, I think I saw that uh, Stacey Keebler had a recurring role, and I think it was Two and a Half Men or something. So. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> recurring role. Like, she she was a repeat character. God, I hope it was the Ashton Kutcher years and not Charlie Sheen, poor gal. I have no idea. I didn't do that much research, but yeah, hopefully. Fingers crossed. <laughs> nice. All right. Trev, you have a good, bad, or ugly for us? I can take a swing at an ugly, and it's mostly do, like having to do with aesthetics um, rather than the quality of the performance uh, being as it it basically just required a large human being that didn't really didn't really require any particular screen presence or charisma or wrestling ability or anything, but uh, that would be Nathan Jones, uh, who has a pretty dense filmography as far as wrestlers go uh, in Conan the Barbarian, the 2007 version with Jason Momoa. Um, that movie is kind of a shit show. Um, it does have some moments. Like it was an early starring role for Jason Momoa and he really showed up. Like, of course he hit the gym like he always does, but um, he definitely uh, retained those Cal Drogo um sword moves because he he can swing a fucking axe man like like uh bullet to the head with sylvester stallone he has the throwdown with stallone at the end of that movie that's like whoa <laughs> like that looks legit dangerous and that's really incredible to watch um so more more weapon juggling for jason momoa performances please um but yeah the movie is is so shallow uh because the original like screen version of Conan the Barbarian, the Arnold Schwarzenegger one from the early 80s, um, is a lot more epic in scale than I think most people would expect. Like it's going for like grand spectacle, like mythic storytelling. And it's not a very dialogue heavy movie, partially because Arnold's accent was out of control at that point in his career. Um, but also because that's the kind of movie they're trying to tell, a lot more showing than telling and, re and really leaning on the score, the soundtrack to tell the story for us. Um, but the 2007 one is just like spoiler plate, like sword and sorcery kind of flick. Um, and it feels very, very much like, like maybe it was financed by the UFC or, or WWE or something. It has that level of cheese to it that I half expected GSP or like, <laughs> or Forrest. I actually thought that Nathan Jones in this movie was Forrest Griffin for a good solid minute there because he's covered in pounds of makeup. So you really can't tell. Um, and his size is strangely not really exploited in the film where nathan joe's is a giant man jason momoa is pretty big as well um, but i'm sure if you put the two of them next to each other jones would have a clear edge over him but the way he's framed in the movie is they just kind of like shove the camera up into his face and he just kind of goes <laughs> and like bears his like nasty gums into the camera and then i think he gets killed by a squid monster that's kind of it <laughs> but yeah the movie kind of sucks the script is really awful I, similar to bill goldberg in a universal soldier whose catchphrase was i really hate that guy i think there's a part where the villain clashes swords with conan and says i don't like you <laughs> it's like 
<laughs> wow, strong words, evil sorcerer. Um, yeah, decent sword choreography, um, but it's mostly thoughtless. It is kind of novel getting to see Bob Sapp on screen. Like he's, I don't, I don't remember if he had a pro wrestling career in Japan, but uh, Bob Sapp is kind of fun in that movie. But again, he's just kind of there to be big guy fall down. Like he doesn't even have any dialogue. Uh, nor just Nathan Jones, as far as I remember. But yeah, that this is one that like, if you haven't seen it, unless you're like a hardcore Jason Momoa fan, you want to see him like in his physical prime twirling a sword, not a whole lot for you. <laughs> yeah, we also would have accepted the latest Mortal Kombat as well. Where it's I think... the same fucking role. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> where I think the only difference is a hammer involved, so... Uh, Actually, the movies bear some resemblance to each other. I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> Perhaps a topic for your next podcast on a more movie-centric one, but that's that's funny now that you mention it. <laughs> um, I'm going to introduce an ugly one, and this one I had actually blocked out of mind for a long time, so I'm glad I have an excuse to have a mind dump here about it. Um, that's Big Van Vader in the role of Goliath in the live-action Fist of the North Star movie. Now, Danimal, Fist of the North Star is a Japanese anime that my brother and I hold near and dear to our hearts. It's essentially Mad Max combined with Kung Fu, the legend of... It's essentially a a wandering figure that goes from town to town in this post-apocalyptic wasteland and he has the ability if he pokes you technically he punches people most of the time but if he just pokes you your head explodes and so you know being a kid like in the 80s and 90s or whatever anything that features like people's heads exploding for no reason is going to grab your attention and this was originally like one of those animes that you pick up at the blockbuster because it's one of the like three japanese movies they have available and then eventually you know you get the internet and you start you know finding episodes online and i believe there were hundreds of them that they made so it's this long convoluted tale they made a movie that's like all consolidated down and doesn't really make a lot of sense but still bloody as all get out and super entertaining so of course they had to make a live action version of this featuring an ensemble of casts of here here's some of the biggest names featured in fist of the north star we have Chris Penn. We have Clint Howard. We have Melvin Van Peebles, not Mario, Melvin Van Peebles. We have Malcolm McDowell. And of course, Big Van Vader. Because there's a character in the anime that's this giant fat man that needs to get punched in the stomach about a thousand times before he finally succumbs to the head exploding treatment. And this movie is so all kinds of bad. Like it's. Production value is worse than any episode of Hercules, the Kevin Sorbo, Sorbo Hercules I ever saw. Only difference is a lot. I watched that show and it, it does not hold up. Yeah. Now imagine that just with a few shitty motorbikes occasionally, like people on dirt bikes roaming around. That's basically what this movie is. And of course, yeah, the finale is all of a sudden this building, just this big van vader just explodes through the door and just like screams something at the protagonist and then tries the to man yeah and tries to put him in a barrel and crush him and i don't even recall how he dies in this movie that's how bad it was but 
the fact that Big Van Vader is one of the biggest names, I believe his name was even featured on the actual cover of this movie. That's how many few like big actors are tied to it. And yeah, I I, I think you should spend five minutes at one point looking at the YouTube and see if there's any clips you can get. Oh, it's, it. it's a it's a given. That's the minute we're off of this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that video's getting its fourth view. <laughs> exactly so this is my chance to remind myself of that yes i sat through this two-hour feature at one point no i'm so glad you brought that up matt i, I totally would have forgot about that because it is kind of just like a fart in the wind type movie like it's like i saw that it's like, oh my god i did see that <laughs> but yeah there were a lot of uh strangely enough there were a lot of like live action adaptations of manga and anime like made by western studios in the late 80s and early 90s and this was one of them because as matt had said it was an established property it's really really popular internationally um it barely set up shop over here by the time that film came out um but i think part of the reason why big van vader was cast in that is because he had a foothold in the japanese audience like you know, his his time spent overseas in Japan as a wrestler, I'm sure selling that that Western produced film to Japanese citizens like probably went over better than it did here. Just because it's like, hey, I know that guy. I saw him do some wrestling back in the day. Oh, shit, this movie sucks. But um, yeah, in terms of production values, it, it really isn't exactly a handsome movie. Like Matt had said, they, there are motorbikes occasionally. But the sets are so small, they have nowhere to go. <laughs> so it's just like, <laughs> it's like, oh, that's, we ran out of space. That's it. We ran out of Dolly track. <laughs> but um, it's funny, actually. Gary Daniels uh, plays Kenshiro in that one. And uh, he was the Brit, they called him in The Expendables, the guy with the blue shirt that gets uh, head kicked by Jet Li and Jason Statham. Gets that nasty neck break uh, in the tunnel fight. Um, but he's our protagonist and uh, Costas Mandalore plays our villain in that. And I know him primarily as the brother of Louis Mandalore. Uh, they're two Greek, like Grecian Australian brothers that like Costas for a minute there was thought of as like the, the handsome guy in Hollywood. But then oh. if you look at his filmography, it's like, really? <laughs> like he was a thing. Yeah. No, he, he ended up uh, being like the fourth peel of the saw onion. Once they kept killing off the main protagonist, it's like, but wait, <laughs> there's another disciple. <laughs> like, it's like a higher power. You just don't know what to do with it. The, the fourth banana of the Saw apprentices. <laughs> yeah, no joke. That That's how I think most people, like most contemporary audiences know him. Uh, I know him as the bad guy from a shitty Fist of the North Star adaptation. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't even remember what Vader did in that movie. But I think he's... Matt, do you think he's supposed to play like Mr. Hart like from the anime? The the big fat guy that he has to like... He has to move away his pounds of fat from his stomach in order to actually touch his, his real like meat, like his real flesh. Because the, the way the martial art works, uh, the way it works is it's pressure points. So the... It's science, animal. Pressure points in the in the fist of the North Star universe can do anything. Like I remember, there's one where he like pokes a guy in the neck, and he's like, "I have poked you in the pressure point that causes both of your arms to move slowly away from each other." <laughs> it's like, okay. It's like I have poked you in the pressure point that causes your memory and your speech to come back to you. It's like, wasn't that the same one that made the arms do the thing? <laughs> but, um, but mostly, it's used for head explosions. 
okay that's that's well, the it's, majority it's, of it. it's good that it's a swiss army knife tool though it's not just exploding heads like. <laughs> yeah like i said this was based on it's like a recurring like serial anime or at least it was back in japan so like they had to have some form of way preventing them from just poking people and having their head explode in fact uh the character that chris penn plays uh jackal in this uh, Jackie in the Japanese one, like his whole character design is that his head's actually like in a vice because he got poked and is like constantly trying to expand, but he can't because he has it like tightened. And then, you know, of course they fight and it comes loose, but, but yeah, they had to add some element of drama. So they had this giant fat man where his pressure points were buried under his layers of blubber. And so, yeah, that that's who Vader's supposed to represent in this movie, but Really, all they have to do is cool a man through a, a building and grab <laughs> the protagonist. <so. laughs> he should oh, have man. come if they had money for the special effects. He should have come through a portal, like from a different dimension. And he's actually just Vader. He's like, "Where <laughs> am I? Where's the stinger? Yeah." <laughs> it's like, I don't know you, but I'm gonna smash you. <laughs> I would venture to argue that Vader was actually more intimidating than this figure he plays. That's how bad it was. So. Oh, Vader, Vader, like Randy Orton seems like a scary guy. Vader seems absolutely terrifying. <laughs> I think while we're on Vader, I can just do a quick shout out that he was featured in a heartwarming turn on Boy Meets World. Where yeah, that's right. He, yeah, he's he's Ethan Suffley's dad, and he's fighting Jake the Snake. Actually, talk about how much pull TGIF had back in the day. But yeah, like Corey and Sean have to help Ethan Suffley's character bond with his wrestler father because he's too like soft as a big big bully character. So you know, Vader showing off the range of being a a, a fat man Kool Aiding and then having a, a heartwarming turn with his son. So. All right. Any honorable mentions for you then, Trap? Uh, no. I I mean, there there's too many to count. I, actually, no. I'll throw one out there, and uh, this doubles as a question for both of y'all, because uh, maybe I'm sure at least one of you can help me with this. Uh, Tyler Maine. Um, okay, love Tyler Maine. Um, as a wrestler, was that his ring name? Uh, because I don't actually know. I know nothing about him as a wrestler. I just know that he was a wrestler because and any profile you find of him online points that out to you. Um, but I just wanted to bring him out there because uh, he's generally not not a like a, a verbiage type actor. He very seldom has dialogue. Um, and if he does, it's very sparse. But as a physical presence, I think he's actually quite talented. Um, he was in both of the Rob Zombie Halloween movies as the Michael Myers character. And he has a physical presence that's pretty, pretty strong. Like he's very intimidating. He's very spooky. Um, I think there was like famously a gag where he was supposed to bust through a door in one of those movies and they didn't have a prop door built and he just fucking broke the door because he's giant <laughs> and he's like, fuck it, let's do it live. <laughs> but uh, he was also Sabretooth in the first X-Men movie. And uh, again, very little dialogue. He wasn't especially remarkable in that, but uh, calling back to Walking Tall, 2000 on the nose, man. That's when we were enamored with with Wire Fu and stuff. And I, that was the kind of choreography that they had him and Hugh Jackman do. And he did it ably, but it wasn't exactly uh, the most fun thing to look back on in 2021. But yeah, I, I was just curious if he if he had a ring name other than Tyler Maine, because I actually don't know. 
I did a little digging because I was a fan as well. And he was Big Sky, which is a, a pretty solid wrestling name for a guy that size. Um, and yeah, no, I always, I really liked him. And he was actually also in a really mediocre TV miniseries, Hercules, which didn't make a lot of sense in a lot of ways. But like, as a, as a Greek American, I, I hold on to all, all things that I can hang my hat on. And he was like the main, it's probably the most dialogue he had in any, anything I saw him in. But it basically the very end is just him and Hercules and Hercules being like, we're both strong men. So that's really the, the peak of it. But no, that was a, that's a great call because yeah, the, the Rob Zombie Halloween movies as a, a fan of all, all Halloween movies to varying degrees, he did very much like the character was very scary. Like he, he does bring a great, a great gravitas to the role. Awesome. Well done. Danimal, you have any last uh, ones you want to pay homage to here? I think the only one, just because we've brought him up so many times and it's such a screwball like scene in a movie that I think we have to keep shouting him out is once again, Big Sexy and The Punisher, which it was a very, very odd take on the whole thing. Um, but the fact that you've got the fight taking place with him being the completely silent, you know, indestructible character as the two guys next door, one of whom is Ben Foster, who's like terrifying in so many movies, 310 to Yuma, 30 Days a Night. And he plays this totally scrawny, weird little dweeb, which I thought was a really funny thing to look back on. But yeah, the, he's the, the indestructible character who then gets, I thought about bringing him up for the ugly because at the end he gets... Uh, killed with a pot of boiling water in his face blisters to, to all hell um, so that was kind of an honorable mention for me just continuing the fact that Kevin Nash for you know you may want to give him some grief but yeah he can do he can do a small part he can do a sizable part but he actually uh, he brings something to it so I'd actually, say, Kevin Nash. I'd actually say that's like one of his standout performances like he gets a decent chunk of screen time he is that scene is the best part of that movie if you ask me i mean yeah it's infamous for being the punisher movie where the punisher isn't the punisher until the last 10 minutes um and punishment takes less than 10 minutes <laughs> but i i have a soft spot for that movie on the whole but just just the fight with the russian um it's it's made like doubly entertaining by the fact that it's pulled almost directly from the comic books like the character design is very similar only difference is the character in the comics was very verbose and had a really goofy sense of humor um and also the way he died was a little bit different uh, i think he gets suffocated by mr bumpo the the heavyset neighbor in the same building in the comic he gets smothered by mr bumpo's fat flesh <laughs> but uh in the comic uh I think I think they borrowed that beat of the the water though, where it, the the one thing that stops the Russian is is hot things. He doesn't like heat, um, but the choreography of that scene is great. I mean, for fuck's sake, he hits Tom Jane with a toilet. <laughs> he hits he hits he hits him with everything, including the kitchen sink. It's great. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you brought that one up too, Danimal, just because I been waiting for a way to shoehorn that performance in somewhere but there was always one that would come to mind that just had a bit more to say so i'm glad that we could mention that because uh kevin nash is practically an episode all to himself in terms of his, his kevin nash is a podcast <laughs> <laughs> kevin nash is a weekly podcast 
I, I will admit I watched that video of him eating ravioli way too much. Like I probably watched that more than I have like some family videos in my my time. In fact, I can guarantee you I have. So I was imitating that at dinner with my girlfriend just last night. <laughs> it's magnificent. It's a masterpiece. <laughs> All right, boys. Well, with that being said, first thing I have to make apologies to Andre the Giant. I'm glad that we were able to have a discussion without bringing him up just because he's always the go-to for basically being the top choice. Also, Hulk Hogan as Thunderlips and Rocky Three would have been an easy one, but I'm glad we kind of just skipped over that because, you know, it's also a movie where Rocky fights Mr. T. So it's real easy to forget that performance. Uh, personally, my soft spot, Suburban Commando, is fucking fun. <laughs> like, I really enjoy that movie. And it's people like have just destroyed it. People love to make like little like videos about how it's one of the dumbest movies ever made. I, I find it endlessly entertaining. So um, I I'll have to throw that one out there. But uh, all that being said, thank you again for listening, and you all take care now.